This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second half of part two, chapter seven. B. The contemplation of imminence. The second group of contemplatives is governed by that love which casteth out fear, by a predominating sense of the nearness, intimacy, and sweetness, rather than the strangeness and unattainable transcendence, of that same infinite life at whose being the first group could only hint by amazing images which seem to be borrowed from the poetry of metaphysics. These are, says Hilton in a lovely image, feelingly fed with the savour of his invisible blessed face. All the feelings which flow from joy, confidence, and affection, rather than those which are grouped about rapture and awe, though awe is always present in some measure, as it is always present in all perfect love, here contribute towards a description of the truth. These contemplatives tell us of their attainment of that which is, as the closest and most joyous of all communions, a coming of the bridegroom, a rapturous immersion in the uncreated light. Nothing more profitable, nothing merrier than grace of contemplation, cries Roll, that lifts us from this low and offers to God. What is grace of contemplation but beginning of joy? What is perfectness of joy but grace confirmed? In such bright contemplation as this, says the mirror of simple souls, the soul is full gladsome and jolly. Utter peace and wild delight, every pleasure state known to man's normal consciousness, are inadequate to the description of her joy. She has participated for an instant in the divine life, knows all and knows naught. She has learnt the world's secret, not by knowing, but by being, the only way of really knowing anything. Where the dominant emotion is that of intimate affection, and where the training or disposition of the mystic inclines him to emphasize the personal and incarnational, rather than the abstract and trinitarian side of Christianity, the contemplative of this type will always tend to describe his secret to us as above all things an experience of adorable friendship. Reality is for him a person, not a state. In the horizon of union, it seems to him that an actual communion, emerging of his self with this other and strictly personal self, takes place. God, he says, then meets the soul in her ground, i.e., in that secret depth of personality where she participates in the absolute life. Clearly, the degree of contemplation, the psychological state, is here the same as that in which the mystic of the impersonal type attained the abyss. But from the point of view of the subject, this joyful and personal encounter of lover and beloved will be a very different experience from the soul's immersion in that desert of deity, as described by Eckhart and his school. In this owning, says Hilton, is the marriage made betwixt God and the soul that shall never be broken. St. Teresa is the classic example of this intimate and effective type of contemplation. But St. Gertrude, Suso, Julian, Mechthild of Magdeburg, and countless others provide instances of its operation. We owe to it all the most beautiful and touching expressions of mystic love. Julian's, I saw him and sought him, and I had him, I wanted him, 
expresses in epigram its combination of rapturous attainment and insatiable desire, its apprehension of a presence at once friendly and divine. So too does her description of the tenth revelation of love, when, with this sweet enjoying, he showed unto mine understanding, in part the blessed Godhead, stirring then the poor soul to understand, as it may be said, that is, to think on the endless love that was without beginning, and is and shall be ever. And with this our good Lord said full blissfully, Lo, how that I loved thee! As if he had said, My darling, behold and see thy Lord, thy God that is thy matter, and thine endless joy. The eyes of a soul were opened, says the scribe to whom Angela of Foligno dictated her revelations, and she saw love advancing gently towards her, and she saw the beginning but not the end, for it was continuous, and there was no colour to which she could compare this love. But directly it reached her she beheld it with the eyes of the soul more clearly than she might do with the eyes of the body, take us towards her the semblance of a sickle. Not that there was any actual and measurable likeness, but this love took on the semblance of a sickle, because it first withdrew itself, not giving itself so fully as it had allowed itself to be understood, and she had understood it, though which caused her to yearn for it the more. It is to Mechthir of Magdeburg, whose contemplation was emphatically of the intimate type, that we owe the most perfect definition of this communion of the mystic with his friend. Horizon, she says, draws the great God down into the small heart, it drives the hungry soul out to the full God. It brings together the two lovers, God and the soul, into a joyful room where they speak much of love. We have already seen that the doctrine of the Trinity makes it possible for Christian mystics, and, still more, for Christian mysticism as a whole, to reconcile this way of apprehending reality with the negative and impersonal perception of the ineffable one, the absolute which hath no image. Though they seem in their extreme forms to be so sharply opposed as to justify Eckhart's celebrated distinction between the unknowable totality of the Godhead and the knowable personality of God, the image and the circle yet represent diverse apprehensions of one whole. All the mystics feel, and the German school in particular have expressed, Dante's conviction that these two aspects of reality, these two planes of being, however widely they seem to differ, are one. Both are ways of describing man's partial context with that absolute truth, present yet absent, near yet far, that triune fact, di tre colori e d'un continenza, which is God. Both are necessary if we are to form any idea of that complete reality, imperfect as any such idea must be, as when two men go together to some undiscovered country, one will bring home news of its great spaces, its beauty of landscape, another of its geological formation, or the flora and fauna that express its life, and both must be taken into account before any just estimate of the real country can be made. Since it is of the essence of the Christian religion to combine personal and metaphysical truth, a transcendent and an incarnate God, it is not surprising that we should find in Christianity a philosophic and theological basis for this paradox of the contemplative experience. Most often, though not always, the Christian mystic identifies the personal and intimate lover of the soul, of whose elusive presence he is so sharply aware, with the person of Christ, the unknowable and transcendent Godhead, with that eternal luce, 
the undifferentiated one in whom the trinity of persons is resumed. Temperamentally, most practical contemplatives lean to either one or other of these apprehensions of reality, to a personal and immanental meeting in the ground of the soul, or to the austere joys of the naughted soul abased before an impersonal transcendence which no language but that of negation can define. In some, however, both types of perception seem to exist together, and they speak alternately of light and darkness, of the rapturous encounter with love, and of supreme self-loss in the naked abyss, the desert of the essence of God. Rusbroek is the perfect example of this type of contemplative, and his works contain numerous and valuable passages descriptive of that synthetic experience which resumes the personal and transcendental aspects of the mystic fact. When we have become seeing, he says, that is to say, when we have attained to spiritual lucidity, we are able to contemplate in joy the eternal coming of the bridegroom, and this is the second point on which I would speak. What, then, is this eternal coming of our bridegroom? It is a perpetual new birth and a perpetual new illumination, for the ground whence the light shines and which is itself the light is life-giving and fruitful, and hence the manifestation of the eternal light is renewed without interruption in the hiddenness of the spirit. Behold, here all human works and active virtues must cease, for here God works alone at the apex of the soul. Here there is naught else but an eternal seeing and staring at that light, by the light and in the light. And the coming of the bridegroom is so swift that he comes perpetually, and he dwells within us with his abysmal riches, and he returns to us anew in his person without interruption, with such new radiance that he seems never to have come to us before. For his coming consists, outside all time, in an eternal now, always welcomed with new longing and new joy. Behold, the delights and the joys which this bridegroom brings in his coming are fathomless and limitless, for they are himself, and this is why the eyes by which the Spirit contemplates the bridegroom are opened so widely that they can never close again. Now this active meeting and this loving embrace are in their essence fruitive and unconditioned, for the infinite undifferentiation of the Godhead is so dark and so naked of all image, that it conceals within itself all the divine qualities and works, all the attributes of the persons in the all-enfolding richness of the essential unity, and brings about a divine fruition in the abyss of the ineffable. And here there is a death in fruition, and a melting and dying into the nudity of pure being, where all the names of God, and all conditions, and all the living images which are reflected in the mirror of divine truth, are absorbed into the ineffable simplicity, the absence of image and of knowledge. For in this limitless abyss of simplicity, all things are embraced in the bliss of fruition, but the abyss itself remains uncomprehended, except by the essential unity. The persons and all that which lives in God must give place to this, for there is naught else here but an eternal rest in the fruitive embrace of an outpouring love, and this is the wayless being that all interior souls have chosen above all other things. This is the dim silence where all lovers lose themselves. Here Rusbroek, beginning with the symbol of the divine personality as bridegroom of the soul, which would have been congenial to the mind of St. Catherine of Siena, ends upon the summits of Christian metaphysics, with a description of the loving immersion of the self in that unconditioned one who transcends the persons of theology and beggars human speech. 
we seem to see him desperately clutching at words and similes which may, he hopes, give some hint of the soul's fruition of reality, its immeasurable difference in kind from the dreams and diagrams of anthropomorphic religion. His strange statements in respect of this divine abyss are on a par with those which I have already quoted from the works of other contemplatives, who, refusing to be led away by the emotional aspect of their experience, have striven to tell us, as they thought, not merely what they felt, but what they beheld. Rysborek's mystical genius, however, the depth and wholeness of his intuition of reality, does not allow him to be satisfied with a merely spatial or metaphysical description of the Godhead. The active meaning and the loving embrace are, he sees, an integral part of the true contemplative act. In the dim silence where lovers lose themselves, a person meets a person, and this it is, not the philosophic absolute, which all interior souls have chosen above all other thing. We must now look more closely at the method by which the contemplative attains to his unique communion with the absolute life, the kind of activity which seems to him to characterize his mergence with reality. As we might expect, that activity, like its result, is of two kinds, personal and affirmative, impersonal and negative. It is obvious that where divine perfection is conceived as the soul's companion, the bridegroom, the beloved, the method of approach will be very different from that which ends in the self's immersion in the paradoxical splendor of the abyss, the still wilderness where no one is at home. It is all the difference between the preparations for a wedding and for an expedition to the Arctic seas. Hence we find at one end of the scale that extreme form of personal and intimate communion, the going forth of lover to beloved, which the mystics call the horizon of union, and at the other end the dark contemplation, by which alone selves of the transcendent and impersonal type claim that they draw near to the unconditioned one. Of the dim and ineffable contemplation of unnameable transcendence, the imageless absorption in the absolute, Dionysius the Areopagite, of course, provides the classic example. It was he who gave to it the name of divine darkness, and all later mystics of this type borrow their language from him. His directions upon the subject are singularly explicit. His descriptions, like those of St. Augustine, glow with an exultant sense of a reality attained, and which others may attain if they will but follow where he leads. As for thee, dear Timothy, he says, I counsel that in the earnest exercise of mystical contemplation thou leave the senses and the operations of the intellect and all things that the senses or the intellect can perceive and all things in this world of nothingness or that world of being and that, thine understanding being laid to rest, thou ascend so far as thou mayest towards union with him whom neither being nor understanding can contain. For by the unceasing and absolute renunciation of thyself and all things, thou shalt in pureness cast all things aside, and be released from all, and so shalt be led upwards to the ray of that divine darkness which exceedeth all existence. Again, the divine dark is naught else but that inaccessible light wherein the Lord is said to dwell. Although it is invisible because of its dazzling splendours, and unsearchable because of the abundance of its supernatural brightness, Nevertheless, whosoever deserves to see and know God rests therein, and, by the very fact that he neither sees nor knows, is truly in that which surpasses all truth and all knowledge. 
it has become a commonplace with writers on mysticism to say that all subsequent contemplatives took from Dionysius this idea of divine darkness and entrance therein as the soul's highest privilege, took it, so to speak, ready-made and on faith, and incorporated it in their tradition. To argue thus is to forget that mystics are above all things practical people. They do not write for the purpose of handing on a philosophical scheme, but in order to describe something which they have themselves experienced, something which they feel to be of transcendent importance for humanity. If, therefore, they persist, and they do persist, in using this simile of darkness to describe their experience and contemplation, it can only be because it fits the facts. No Hegelian needs to be told that we shall need the addition of its opposite before we can hope to approach the truth and it is exactly the opposite of this dim ignorance which is offered us by mystics of the joyous or intimate type, who find their supreme satisfaction in the positive experience of union, the mystical marriage of the soul. What, then, do those who use this image of the dark really mean by it? They mean this, that God in his absolute reality is unknowable, is dark to man's intellect which is, as Bergson has reminded us, adapted to other purposes than those of divine intuition. When under the spur of mystic love, the whole personality of man comes into contact with that of reality. It enters a plane of experience to which none of the categories of the intellect apply. Reason finds itself in a most actual sense in the dark, immersed in the cloud of unknowing. This dimness and lostness of the mind, then, is a necessary part of the mystic's ascent to the absolute. That absolute, the mysterium tremendum et facinans, will not be known of the heart until we acknowledge that it is unknown of the intellect, and obey the Dionysian injunction to leave the operations of the understanding on one side. The movement of the contemplative must be a movement of the whole man. He is to precipitate himself, free and unfettered, into the bosom of reality. Only when he has thus transcended sight and knowledge can he be sure that he has also transcended the world with which these faculties are competent to deal, and is in that holy other which surpasses all image and all idea. This is love, to fly heavenward, to rend every instant a hundred veils, the first moment to renounce life, the last step to fare without feet to regard this world as invisible, not to see what appears to oneself. This acknowledgement of our intellectual ignorance, this humble surrender, is the entrance into the cloud of unknowing, the first step towards mystical knowledge of the Absolute. For truth and humility are full true sisters, says Hilton, fastened together in love and charity, and there is no distance of counsel betwixt them two. Thou askest me, and sayest, says the author of the cloud of unknowing, how shall I think on himself, and what is he? And to this I cannot answer thee but thus, I wot not. For thou hast brought me with thy question, into that same darkness, and into that same cloud of unknowing, that I would thou wert in thyself. For of all other creatures and their works, yea, and of the works of God's self, may a man through grace have full head of knowledge, and well he can think of them but of God himself can no man think. And therefore I will leave all that thing that I can think, and choose to my love that thing that I cannot think. For why he may well be loved, but not thought. By love may he be gotten and holden, but by thought never. 
smite upon that thick cloud of unknowing with a sharp dart of longing love, and go not thence for thing that befalleth. So long, therefore, as the object of the mystic's contemplation is amenable to thought, is something which he can know, he may be quite sure that it is not the absolute, but only a partial image or symbol of the absolute. To find that final reality, he must enter into the cloud of unknowing, must pass beyond the plane on which the intellect can work. When I say darkness, says the same great mystic, I mean thereby a lack of knowing. And for this reason it is not called a cloud of the air, but a cloud of unknowing that is between thee and thy God. The business of the contemplative, then, is to enter this cloud, the good dark, as Hilton calls it, the deliberate inhibition of discursive thought and rejection of images which takes place in the horizon of quiet is one of the ways in which this entrance is effected. Personal surrender or self-naughting is another. He who, by dint of detachment and introversion, enters the nothingness or ground of the soul, enters also into the dark, a statement which seems simple enough until we try to realize what it means. Oh, where, says the bewildered disciple in one of Boehm's dialogues, is this naked ground of the soul void of all self? And how shall I come at the hidden centre, where God dwelleth and not man? Tell me plainly, loving soul, where it is, and how it is to be found of me and entered into. Master, there where the soul hath slain its own will, and willeth no more any thing is from itself. Disciple, but how shall I comprehend it? Master, if thou goest about to comprehend it, then it will fly away from thee, but if thou dost surrender thyself wholly up to it, then it will abide with thee, and become the life of thy life, and be natural to thee. The author of The Cloud of Unknowing is particularly explicit as to the sense of dimness and confusion which overwhelms the self when it first enters this dark, a proceeding which is analogous to that annihilation of thought in the interests of passive receptivity, which we have studied in the quiet. At the first time when thou dost it, he says of the neophyte's first vague steps in contemplation, thou findest but a darkness, and as it were a cloud of unknowing, thou knowest not what, saving that thou feelest in thy will a naked intent unto God. This darkness and this cloud is, howsoever thou dost, betwixt thee and thy God, and let it thee, that thou mayest neither see him clearly by light of understanding in thy reason, nor feel him in sweetness of love in thine affection. And therefore shape thee to bide in this darkness as long as thou mayest, evermore crying after him that thou lovest. For if ever thou shalt feel him, or see him as it may be here, it behoveth always to be in this cloud and this darkness. From the same century, but from a very different country and temperament, comes another testimony as to the supreme value of this dark contemplation of the divine, this absorption beyond the span of thought or emotion in the substance of all that is. It is one of the most vivid and detailed accounts of this strange form of consciousness which we possess, and deserves to be compared carefully with the statements of the cloud of unknowing and of St. John of the Cross. We owe it to that remarkable personality, the blessed Angela of Foligno, who was converted from a life of worldliness to become not only a Franciscan, but also a Platonic mystic. In it, we seem to hear the voice of Plotinus speaking from the Velo Spilito. Whilst I was questioning her, says her secretary, Christ's faithful one was suddenly wrapped in spirit and seemed not to understand my words. 
and then was given her a wondrous grace. After a short time, she began to tell me what follows. My soul has just been wrapped to a state in which I tasted unspeakable joy. I knew all I longed to know, possessed all I longed to possess. I saw all good. She said further, In this state the soul cannot believe that this good will ever depart from her, or that she will depart from it, or that she will again be separated from it. But she delights herself in that sovereign good. My soul sees nothing whatever that can be told of the lips or the heart. She sees nothing, and she sees all. No good that can be described or conceived is now the object of my hope, for I have put all my hope in a secret good, most hid in secret, which I apprehend in great darkness. And as I, the brother, could not receive or understand this dark, Christ's faithful one wishing to explain, said, If I see it in the dark, it is because it surpasses all good. All, all the rest is but darkness. All which the soul or heart can reach is inferior to this good. That which I have told hitherto, namely, all the soul grasps when she sees all creatures filled with God, when she sees the divine power, and when she sees the divine will, is inferior to this most secret good, because this good which I see in the darkness is the all, and all other things are but parts. And she added, Though inexpressible, these other things bring delight, but this vision of God in darkness brings no smile to the lips, no devotion or fervour of love to the soul. All the countless and unspeakable favours God has done to me, all the words he has said to me, all you have written are, I know, so far below the good I see in that great darkness, that I do not put in them my hope. Christ's faithful one told me that her mind had been uplifted but three times to this most high and ineffable mode of beholding God in great darkness, and in a vision so marvellous and complete. Certainly she had seen the sovereign good countless times and always darkly, yet never in such a high manner and through such great dark. These words, and indeed the whole idea which lies at the bottom of dark contemplation, will perhaps be better understood in the light of Baron von Hugel's deeply significant saying, Souls loving God in his infinite individuality will necessarily love him beyond their intellectual comprehension of him. The element of devoted trust, of free self-donation to one fully known only through and in such an act, will thus remain to man for ever. Hence, the contemplative act, which is an act of loving and self-forgetting concentration upon the divine, the outpouring of man's little and finite personality towards the absolute personality of God, will, in so far as it transcends thought, mean darkness for the intellect, but it may mean radiance for the heart. Psychologically, it will mean the necessary depletion of the surface consciousness, the stilling of the mechanism of thought, in the interests of another centre of consciousness. Since this new centre makes enormous demands on the self-stock of vitality, its establishment must involve, for the time that it is active, the withdrawal of energy from other centres. Thus the night of thought becomes the strictly logical corollary of the light of perception. No one has expressed this double character of the divine dark, its nothingness for the dissecting knife of reason, its supreme fruitfulness for expansive, active love, with so delicate an insight as St. John of the Cross. In his work, the Christian touch of personal rapture vivifies the exact and sometimes arid descriptions of the Neoplatonic mystics. A great poet, as well as a great mystic, 
In his poem on the obscure night, he brings to bear on the actual and ineffable experience of the introverted soul all the highest powers of artistic expression, all the resources of musical rhythm, the suggestive qualities of metaphor. Upon an obscure night, fevered with love's anxiety, O hapless, happy plight! I went, none seeing me, forth from my house where all things quiet be, by night secure from sight and by a secret stare disguisedly, O hapless, happy plight! By night and privily forth from my house where all things quiet be, blessed night of wandering in secret when by none might I be spied, nor I see anything. Without a light to guide, save that which in my heart burnt in my side, that light did lead me on, more surely than the shining of noontide, where well I knew that one did for my coming bide. Where he abode might none but he abide. O night that didst lead thus, O night more lovely than the dawn of light, O night that brought us us, lover to lover's sight, lover to loved in marriage of delight. Upon my flowery breast, Holy for him, and save himself for none. There did I give sweet rest to my beloved one. The fanning of the cedars breathed thereon. Observe in these verses the perfect fusion of personal and metaphysical imagery, each contributing by its suggestive qualities to a total effect which conveys to us, we hardly know how, the obscure yet flaming rapture of the mystic the affirmation of his burning love and the accompanying negation of his mental darkness and quiet, that hapless, happy plight. All is here, the secrecy of the contemplative's true life, unseen of other men, his deliberate and active abandonment of the comfortable house of the senses, the dim, unknown plane of being into which his ardent spirit must plunge, a night more lovely than the dawn of light, the inward light, the fire of mystic love, which guides his footsteps more surely than the shining of noontide, the self-giving ecstasy of the consummation wholly for him, and save himself for none, in which lover attains communion with beloved in marriage of delight. In his book, The Dark Night of the Soul, St. John has commented upon the opening lines of this poem, and the passages in which he does this are amongst the finest and most subtle descriptions of the psychology of contemplation which we possess. The soul, he says, calls the dim contemplation by which it ascends to the union of love, a secret stare, and that because of two properties of this contemplation which I shall explain separately. First, this dark contemplation is called secret, because it is, as I have said before, the mystical theology which theologians call secret wisdom, and which, according to St. Thomas, is infused into the soul more especially by love. This happens in a secret, hidden way, in which the natural operations of the understanding and the other powers have no share. The soul can neither discern nor give it a name, neither desires so to do. And besides, it can discover no way nor apt comparison by which to make known a knowledge so high, a spiritual impression so delicate and infused. So that even if the soul felt the most lively desire to explain itself, and heaped up explanations, the secret would remain a secret still. Because this interior wisdom is so simply general and spiritual, that it enters not into the understanding under the guise of any form or image perceptible to sense. Therefore the senses and the imagination, which have not served as intermediaries, and have perceived no sensible form or colour, cannot account for it, 
nor form any conception of it, so as to speak about it, though the soul be distinctly aware that it feels and tastes this strange wisdom. The soul is like a man who sees an object for the first time, the like of which he has never seen before. He perceives it and likes it, yet he cannot say what it is, nor give it a name, do what he will, though it be even an object cognizable by the senses. How much less, then, can that be described which does not enter in by the senses? Inexpressible in its natures, as we have said, it is rightly called secret, and for yet another reason it is so called, for this mystical wisdom has the property of hiding the soul within itself. For beside its ordinary operation, it sometimes happens that this wisdom absorbs the soul and plunges it in a secret abyss, wherein it sees itself distinctly as far away and separated from all created things. It looks upon itself as one that is placed in a profound and vast solitude whither no creature can come, and which seems an immense wilderness without limits. And this solitude is the more delicious, sweet, and lovely, the more it is deep, vast, and empty. There the soul is the more hidden, the more it is raised up above all created things. This abyss of wisdom now lifts up and enlarges the soul, giving it to drink at the very sources of the science of love. Thereby it perceives how lowly is the condition of all creatures in respect to the supreme knowledge and sense of the divine. It also understands how low, defective, and, in a certain sense, improper, are all the words and phrases by which in this life we discuss divine things. That they escape the best efforts of human art and science, and that only the mystical theology can know and taste what these things are in their reality. In this important passage, we have a reconciliation of the four chief images under which contemplation has been described. The darkness and the light, the wilderness and the union of love. That is to say, the self's paradoxical sense of an ignorance which is supreme knowledge, and of a solitude which is intimate companionship. On the last of these antitheses, the wilderness that is more delicious, sweet and lovely, the more it is wide, vast and empty. I cannot resist quoting, as a gloss upon the dignified language of the Spanish mystic, the quaint and simple words of Richard Rolle. In the wilderness speaks the loved to the heart of the lover, as it were a bashful lover, that his sweetheart before men entreats not, nor friendly wise, but commonly and as a stranger he kisses. A devout soul safely from worldly business in mind and body departed. Anon comes heavenly joy, and it marvellously making merry melody to her springs, whose token she takes, that now forward worldly sound gladly she suffers not. This is ghostly music that is unknown to all that with worldly business lawful or unlawful are occupied. No man there is that this has known, but he that has studied to God only to take heed. Doubtless the dark transcendence reported and dwelt upon by all mystics of the Dionysian type is nearest the truth of all our apprehensions of God, though it can be true only in the paradoxical sense that it uses the suggestive qualities of negation the dark whose very existence involves that of light, to hint at the infinite affirmation of all that is. But the nearer this language is to the absolute, the further it is from ourselves. Unless care be taken in the use of it, the elimination of falsehood may easily involve for us the elimination of everything else. Man is not yet pure spirit, 
has not attained the eternal. He is in via, and will never arrive if impatient amateurs of reality insist on cutting the ground from under his feet. Like Dante, he needs a ladder to the stars, a ladder which goes the whole way from the human to the divine. Therefore the philosophic exactitude of these descriptions of the dark must be balanced, as they are in St. John of the Cross, by the personal, human, and symbolic affirmations of love, if we would avoid a distorted notion of the reality which the contemplative attains in his supreme flights towards God. Consciousness has got to be helped across the gap which separates it from its home. The wilderness, the dread abyss, must be made homely by the voice of the lover that his sweetheart before men entreats not. Approximate as we know such an image of our communion with the absolute to be, it represents a real aspect of the contemplative experience which eludes the rule and compass of metaphysical thought. Blake, with true mystic insight, sums up the situation as between the two extreme forms of contemplation when he wrote, God appears and God is light to those poor souls who dwell in night, but doth a human form display to those who dwell in realms of day. In the horizon of union and the spiritual marriage, those contemplatives whose temperament inclines them to dwell in the realms of day receive just such a revelation of the human form, a revelation which the Christian dogma of the Incarnation brings to a point. They apprehend the personal and passionate aspect of the infinite life, and the love at once intimate and expansive, all demanding and all renouncing, which plays like lightning between it and the desirous soul. Thou saidst to me, my only love, that thou didst will to make me thyself, and that thou wast all mine, with all that thou hadst, and with all paradise, and that I was all thine, that I should leave all, or rather the nothing, and that then thou wouldst give me the all, and that thou hadst given me this name, at which words I heard within me, Dedi te in lucem gentium, not without good reason. And it seemed then as though I had an inclination for nothing except the purest union, without any means, in accordance with that detailed sight which thou hadst given me. So then I said to thee, These other things give them to whom thou wilt. Give me but this most pure union with thee, free from other means. Our work is the love of God, cries Wisborick. Our satisfaction lies in submission to the divine embrace. This utter and abrupt submission to the divine embrace is the essence of that form of contemplation which is called the horizon of union. Surrender is its secret, a personal surrender, not only of finite to infinite, but of bride to bridegroom, heart to heart. This surrender in contemplators of an appropriate temperament is of so complete and ecstatic a type that it involves a more or less complete suspension of normal consciousness, an entrancement, and often crosses the boundary which separates contemplation from true ecstasy, producing in its subject physical as well as psychical effects. In this state, says St. Teresa, there is no sense of anything, only fruition, without understanding what that may be the fruition of which is granted. It is understood that the fruition is of a certain good, containing in itself all good together at once. But this good is not comprehended. The senses are all occupied in this fruition in such a way that not one of them is at liberty so as to be able to attend to anything else, whether outward or inward. But this state of complete absorption, together with the utter rest of the imagination, for I believe that the imagination is then wholly at rest, 
lasts only for a short time. Though the faculties do not so completely recover themselves as not to be for some hours afterwards as if in disorder. He who has had experience of this will understand it in some measure, for it cannot be more clearly described, because what then takes place is so obscure. All I am able to say is that the soul is represented as being close to God, and that there abides a conviction thereof so certain and strong that it cannot possibly help believing so. All the faculties fail now, and are suspended in such a way that, as I said before, their operations cannot be traced. The will must be fully occupied in loving, but it understands not how it loves. The understanding, if it understands, does not understand how it understands. It does not understand, as it seems to me, because, as I said just now, this is a matter which cannot be understood. Clearly, the psychological situation here is the same as that in which mystics of the impersonal type feel themselves to be involved in the cloud of unknowing, or divine dark. Do not imagine, says St. Teresa in another place, that this horizon, like that which went before, i.e. the quiet, is a sort of drowsiness. I call it drowsiness because the soul seems to slumber being neither thoroughly asleep nor thoroughly awake. In the prayer of union the soul is asleep, fast asleep as regards herself and earthly things. In fact, during the short time that this state lasts, she is deprived of all feeling, and though she wishes it, she can think of nothing. Thus she needs no effort in order to suspend her thoughts. If the soul can love, she knows not how or when she loves, nor what she desires. She is, as it were, entirely dead to the world, the better to live in God. It may be asked, in what way does such contemplation as this differ from unconsciousness? The difference, according to St. Teresa, consists in the definite somewhat which takes place during this inhibition of the surface consciousness, a somewhat of which that surface consciousness becomes aware when it awakes. True contemplation, as the mystics are constantly assuring us, must always be judged by its fruits. If it be genuine, work has been done during the period of apparent passivity. The deeper self has escaped, has risen to freedom, and returns other than it was before. We must remember that Teresa is speaking from experience, and that her temperamental peculiarities will modify the form which this experience takes. The soul, she says, neither sees, hears, nor understands anything while this state lasts, but this is usually a very short time, and seems the soul even shorter than it really is. God visits the soul in a way that prevents it doubting when it comes to itself that it has been in God and God in it. And so firmly is it convinced of this truth that though years may pass before this state recurs, the soul can never forget it nor doubt its reality. But you will say, how can the soul see and comprehend that she is in God and God in her if during this union she is not able either to see or understand? I reply, that she does not see it at the time, but that afterwards she perceives it clearly, not by a vision, but by a certitude which remains in the heart which God alone can give. End of part two, chapter seven.